بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد بدير بدر السستر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته I'm going to begin by uh, starting uh, telling you a story I was in my first year of uh, Medina in, in the in the bachelor's program and my best friend at that time uh, was getting married and he's like look you know you got to come back you got to do my nikah and you have to be here for the wima and I was like no worries you know we're going to have a, a great time and everything is going to go well so I come back during the summertime we do his nikah and uh, it was at a hotel it was a beautiful beautiful wedding mashallah so many people I hadn't seen for a long time and we had a, a great time alhamdulillah so the wedding finished around 10 30 11 o'clock I came home I was exhausted and I, I went to bed and at three o'clock in the morning the house phone starts going off and I was so knocked out that I didn't even hear the house phone so my dad comes knocking at the door rahimahullah ta'ala and he's like Naveed wake up someone's calling for you and you know when your dad comes and gets you at three o'clock in the morning it's not a good sign <laughs> so I thought I was in trouble I thought something was happening and I wake up and I see, uh, and, and uh, I'm like salam alaikum who is this and it was my best friend and he was in a panic and almost in a frantic shock he's like Naveed you need to come over right now something's wrong with my wife and I was like, okay, don't worry, man. Let's, uh, let's figure this out. So I went to his house, and I'm just wearing my sleeping clothes at that time. And, you know, subhanAllah, it was a, a very scary image. Like the, the, the sister was unable to move her legs at that time. When she would speak, her voice was very, very different. Um, she had a level of strength that was uh, not a normal level of strength. And the first thing that came to my mind, because that's what we had been trained to think, is that she's possessed by jinn. This is what's happening. This is like, you know what? We need to do a ruqya session. And I guess what was also at the forefront of my mind is because I had done ruqya training at that time. A little bit, not a lot, but I had done ruqya training at that time. So when you're like, you know a little bit of the symptoms, you automatically conclude, okay, this must be it. Which is the problem of not having the knowledge of the whole picture. So I went home, you know, got my white thobe on, got my kufi on. I had my, you know, container of zamzam. This was like, you know, Muslim Ghostbusters type vibe. Go over and reciting Quran, and she's reacting to it, subhanAllah. You know, uh, spraying her with zamzam. She's reacting to the spraying of zamzam. We did this for about 24 hours. And I was like, it's not supposed to be this hard. You know, our time eventually comes where if there is sihar or if there is jinn, you know, it puts the person to sleep because they're uh, in, in so much agony and pain, subhanAllah. And we're doing this for like about 24 hours and there's no reaction. And what do kids do that's stupid and dumb? They're like, let's try to hide this from our parents and let's not tell them. And he didn't want to tell his parents what, what was going on because he thought that his parents wouldn't understand. So eventually after 24 hours, we came to the decision, you know what, maybe we won't tell your parents, but we definitely need to have a conversation with her parents like, is there something that we don't know? And eventually we realized that many, many years ago, nothing recent, but many, many years ago, the sister had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And the stress of the wedding, the anxiety of the wedding, it basically created a reaction in her and it brought it back. And because she had been off of her meds for so long, we didn't have access to the medication, we had to take her to the hospital. And once she got back on her medication, alhamdulillah, you know, she went completely back to normal, to the, to the person that we knew. And for me, that created uh, a shift in my perception, where it's always good to know what your starting points are in life in terms of your knowledge, and it's always important to know what your gaps in knowledge are. So from that point on, you know, I did a lot of reading, and we're talking about this is maybe around 2015, 2016. Actually, no, even before that, I'm so sorry. This is like 2006. 2005, 2006, because I was still in Medina at that time. And I started reading about mental health and reading about mental illness. And then you, we always saw this divide between what religion said and what science says. And very few instances where there are people that knew Islam were speaking about psychology and mental health and people that knew psychology and mental health, you know, had some sort of understanding of Islam and they were trying to merge the two together. So I started doing this presentation um, a couple of years back and every community that I try to visit, I try to do this presentation to create awareness about mental health and then also speak about the Islamic components to good mental health practices and what we can learn. 
So the first question that always comes up, is there any evidence in the Quran and the Sunnah that mental health exists in Islam? So for the literalists out there that need evidence for everything, I present you the hadith found in Sahih al-Bukhari in the book of fasting. Where Abu Darda radiallahu anhu and Salman al-Farsi had been paired together. For, the, for those of you that were here last night, we were speaking how when the Prophet ﷺ made hijrah and he migrated to Medina, he paired certain companions together. He compared Abdul Rahman ibn Auf and Sa'dan al Rabi'ah. And here we have uh, Abu Darda and Salman al Farsi being paired together. So Salman was the older, the wiser. And you see this story over here where Salman anhu, he comes knocking on the door of Abu Darda. And Umm Darda, the wife of Abu Darda, she opens the door very disheveled, not well maintained. And he asks her, Ma sha'nuki, like, why are you in such a state? And she says, Akhuka Abu Darda, hajatun fid dunya. That, you know, Abu Darda, he has no desire from this dunya whatsoever. So I just stay in this state. And you can imagine back then, it's not easy to take regular showers, not easy to wash your clothes, because there's limited access to water. And there's no such concept of dressing up or anything like that, because it's a very humble and simple lifestyle. So staying disheveled was sort of the norm, right? So he asks her this, and she says that meaning that he has no desire, so there's no desire for, there's, there's no even want from me myself to do anything special or to get dressed up or to, to look nice or anything like that. And she tells him that he's not home right now, but he will be home soon. And then he waits until he comes. And Abu Darda eventually arrives, and Abu Darda does the customary thing of offering food. Guest comes, you have to offer food. And then as Salman is about to start eating, Abu Darda says, I am fasting. And then Salman commands him to break his fast. And this is part of the fiqh of it, that if you're fasting as a host and a guest comes, if they are eating, it is customary and it is permissible for you to break your fast so that your, go, your go, uh, guest feels comfortable eating with you as well. Obviously, this is outside of Ramadan and non-obligatory fasting. So they ate together. Nighttime comes and the right of the guest is to stay with the host for three days. And it's something that was customary that they didn't even ask. It was an understood custom that I'll be staying with you for three days and this is my right as a guest. So now the night proceeds and as nighttime comes, Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, he starts waking up for Qiyam al-Layl to pray in the middle of the night. And Salman commands him, go back to bed, go back to sleep. It happens a few other times, go back to bed. And now the last third of the night comes and Salman radiallahu anhu wakes him up. And he says, let's pray together. So they pray in the last third of the night and they finish their prayer. And then Salman starts giving him advice. And this is the beauty of our faith is that each and every one of us will have knowledge gaps, will have lapses in our knowledge. And it, as a community, we complement and supplement those gaps. So Salman, he gives him this beautiful advice. He says, Inna li rabbika alayka haqq. That your Lord has rights upon you, your soul has rights upon you, your family has rights upon you. So give every possessor of rights their due share. Give them their due rights. Now, Abu Darda, he hears this advice from Salman. And it was customary, you get advice, you want to go and confirm it with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So he goes to the masjid, asks the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, is this true, is this sound advice? And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, Sadaqa Salman, that Salman has spoken the truth. The operative sentence that we're going to extract from, for the sake of our discussion, wa inna li nafsika alayka haq, that even your soul has rights upon you. So when we look at the Islamic paradigm of psychology, the discussion begins about the nafs and the ruh. So the nafs, we would translate as the ego perhaps, or the source of desire. And the ruh is the source of life. But it is also the source of your spiritual tranquility. The ruh needs to be at peace. It needs to be tranquil. So the physical body, just like it has needs, it needs to eat, it needs to drink, it needs to sleep. Then the spiritual body, which is the ruh, also needs to be nourished and needs to be maintained. How does that take place? Through the different degrees of spirituality and through different spiritual activity, like praying. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala legislated prayer so that we can remember Him and be at peace and be at tranquility. The Prophet sallallahu used to say, Arihna biha ya Bilal, give the adhan so that we may be at peace. So just like we pay very good attention to the way that we nourish our bodies and take care of our bodies, there has to be an active role in taking care of our souls as well. And that's what we're going to look at today, bithnillahi ta'ala.
Now, when you think of mental health, what do you actually think of? So for the, from the brother's side, when you guys think of mental health, what words come to mind to you? Our brother was telling us early on about narcissistic syndrome that he was just learning about. Go ahead. Yep. Worrying about the future. So you're stressed, you have anxiety. Anyone else from the brothers? Go ahead. Not being stable, not having stability in your life. How about from the sisters? When you think of mental health, what do you think of? Depression. Depression. Excellent. What else? Anxiety. Okay, what else? Anything else that we think of when we think of mental health? Emotional stability, emotional health. Sorry, you were saying something? Something that's hard to explain. I, I love that answer. So all of these are all the different things that come to, to mind when we think about mental health. So it deals with our psychology, deals with our emotion, deals with our psychological well-being. These are all of the things that come to mind. Now, with regards to a definition of what we're going to be working with today, when we talk about mental health, we're speaking about the ability to deal with the day-to-day -day stress of life so that you can complete your functions and your tasks. That's what we're looking at. So when we speak about mental health, good mental health equals your ability to cope with the day-to-day -day stress of life so that you can complete your functions and tasks. That is the definition that we're going to be working with. So a sign of mental illness, it would be that if an individual is not able to deal with the daily stress of life, so much so that they're unable to deal with their functions and tasks on a daily basis. Now, let's look at some of the numbers, right? Statistics are very important to look at. One in five Canadians experience mental illness in a given year, so one in five. So if you're sitting down, two people to your right, two people to your left, one in five, right there. Young people aged 15 to 24 are more likely to experience mental illness and or substance use disorders than any other age group, meaning it is predominantly hitting younger people, 15 to 24. So when we speak about mental illness, it means that we have to do our due diligence in creating a preventative discussion. Like how do we prevent this from happening? Those of us that are older, we have a bit more experience and perhaps we don't know much about mental health, but for younger generations, now that they're speaking about it, more awareness needs to be raised and more help needs to be provided to that younger generation for a wide variety of reasons. Number three, economic burden of mental illness in Canada is estimated at $51 billion per year, meaning the amount of revenue that is uh, lost due to people taking mental illness days or being unable to function due to mental illness, it's costing $51 billion per year. So it shows us that there is an economic impact of mental health. And keep in mind, these are all pre-pandemic numbers. We don't have the most up-to-date pandemic numbers in terms of what it's been costing, but clearly we've been seeing a rise in mental illness during the pandemic. Number four, an estimated 75% of children with mental disorders do not access specialized treatment services, meaning that they'll go to their general physician and the general physician will know that, you know, something isn't right over here, but no special diagnosis is made to them. That this could be for lack of access, this could be due to the fact that perhaps, you know, the psychologists are just so overworked that spots and slots aren't available, right? Particularly for certain types of psychologists, depending on the type of treatment that you're looking for, you may have months of waiting time to go and see them. About 4,000 Canadians per year die by suicide, an average of almost 11 suicides a day. And SubhanAllah, you know, particularly for the Muslim community, we often think that we're uh, immune to suicide. And the reality is that we aren't. It's just that we do a very good job of hiding it behind shame. Families become very, very ashamed when someone in their families die by suicide. And I think that needs to change because if there's such a high level of stigma and such a high level of shame, people do not grieve properly. People don't receive the support that they need because of this shame. And yes, this is not to say that suicide is allowed in Islam and this is a, a way out that uh, Islam condones. That's not it at all. But the reality is that whether we accept it or not, it's a reality that we have to face. And we need to provide support to people and to show people that, look, there is support when it is needed for those that have 
suicidal ideation and suicidal thoughts, but also for the families as well that are going to grieve and they're going to blame themselves that what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? So that this person, you know, uh, wouldn't have taken their lives at that time. In 2016, suicide accounted for 19% of deaths amongst youth aged 10 to 14. That's almost one in five again. So can you imagine one in five in Canada, 10 to 14, their causes of death are suicide. 29% amongst 15 to 19, so that's almost one third, one in three, and 23% amongst young adults, 20 to 24. And then if you break this down by gender, you'll find it that men are more likely to commit suicide than women. Men are more likely to commit suicide uh, and die by suicide than women. And you can read more about it on the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Now, what I want to present to you is the continuum model. And I want to give a, a disclaimer here as well. One of the problems of having access to information is self-diagnosis. So you're like, oh, I have a sore throat today. Oh, I have a headache. Oh, you know, I, I, I have been having trouble smelling something. Therefore, I must have COVID, right? That happens to everyone. And particularly if you have relatives that have access to the internet, when they ask you how you're doing, you tell them your symptoms, they're gonna do the diagnosis for you. So what I wanna say over here is that, look, there are going to be certain things that we discussed today that you're like, yeah, that's happening to me in my life. That's how I feel. But certain elements of this are just part of life, right? There was a, this uh, ongoing joke that my wife and I have that once you hit 30, you're always tired, right? It's not about you did some extraneous physical activity. It's not about you sleeping late. Even if you get enough sleep, you're still tired for some reason after you hit 30 years old. So when we talk about this model, just keep that in mind. Don't focus on making a self-diagnosis, but understand what this model is trying to explain. So this continuum model of mental health, what we're looking at are behaviors with relation to your social activity, your physical activity, your eating and your sleeping, and your ability to do your tasks. These are the components that we're looking at. And when you're healthy, you're in the green. As things start to degenerate and digress, it'll go into the yellow, and then into the orange, and into the red. And it does not necessitate that you go green to red. In fact, normal fluctuation will look from green to, or to orange. That's pretty normal fluctuation. What becomes problematic is if one gets stuck in the orange or gets stuck in the red, that they're not fluctuating back the other way. That's when we get concerned, that's when we get worried, and that's when professional help should be sought. So let's look at what a, men, uh, what a healthy uh, you know, person looks like. So they'll have normal fluctuations in mood. What does that look like? Something good happens, you get happy. Something bad happens, you're sad, you're angry, you're depressed. Normal sleep patterns, meaning that you're sleeping around you know, six to eight hours a day. That's pretty normal. Physically well, full of energy. As I said, that changes after you hit 30. Don't set yourself up for failure by thinking you'll always have energy your whole entire life. Consistent performance, you know what you're able to do, you know the tasks that you have, and you're regularly able to complete them. You're socially active. So this is not to talk about those that are introverts and those that are extroverts and where they draw their energy from, but this is to talk about your normal state of being an introvert, your normal state of being extrovert doesn't change, doesn't change. Now what actions do you take when you're at this level? Nothing, you just focus on the task at hand, break, break your tasks down into manageable chunks, identify and nurture your support systems, and that's something we need to talk about uh, a little bit, and maintain a healthy lifestyle. So making sure you're sleeping adequately, making sure you're trying to do physical activity 20 minutes a day, making sure that you're eating well, trying to eat healthy, and making sure that you're socializing. Now, this concept of a support system, it isn't actively discussed, but each individual needs to identify a support system for themselves. So that if something difficult happens in their lives, they have that support system in play. So generally, when we're young children, our parents are our support system. And they you know, cuddle us, and they nurture us, and they make us feel better. But as you grow older, you have to create your own support system. And part of that support system from a Muslim's perspective is your own belief system and the role that your faith plays in being a part of your support system. It is your friends, it is your family, it is the community. You have to think about what your support system is and you actually have to actively engage with it. Then we get to the yellow. This is where a person is nervous, they're irritable, they get sad. And this sadness is not stemming from an event, 
it's stemming from you know, a natural state where nothing catastrophic or disastrous has happened, but you just feel sad. You have trouble sleeping, you're tired, low energy, muscle tension, headaches, you procrastinate, and this is the one that gets everyone. Like who in this room does not procrastinate? Whether it's at work or at school, it's a human condition. But we're talking about everything gets procrastinated. Like the dishes are there, and you're like, inshallah, I'll do it tomorrow. And it keeps building up, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Till the dishes are built up, rather than washing the dishes, you're like, okay, let me order food from outside, because it'll come with a container so I don't have to wash it. This is what's starting to happen. Decrease social activity, you don't want to go hang out with your friends, you don't want to go to the masjid, you don't want to go to community events. And this is where you need to start taking action, right? Recognize what your limits and boundaries are. What are you capable of? What are you not capable of? Try to alleviate as much of the pressure as you can. Get adequate rest, food, and exercise. Force yourself to get rest. You may not fall asleep right away, but allocate enough time so that your body does have the opportunity to sleep if that's what it needs. Make sure you're eating healthy food. Try to eliminate the sugar. Try to eliminate the, the, the fatty foods and exercise. And this is something that can't be emphasized enough, but the endorphins that are created through exercise are very, very good for our mental health. Are very, very good for our mental health. This is a natural way of the body re releasing its stress. Engage in healthy coping strategies. So unhealthy coping strategies, people become obscene, vulgar, they break stuff, they deal, go towards substances, drugs, alcohol, sometimes even promiscuity. Those are very unhealthy coping mechanisms. A healthy coping mechanism is perhaps engaging in dhikr, going for a walk, doing some exercise, something along those lines. Identify and minimize stressors. So figure out what is it that's causing you stress in your life? Is there a way to minimize it? And oftentimes you'll find that there are relationships that bring extra stress in your life. Honest and frank, married couples for the wife, the mother-in-law relationship is one of the greatest sources of stress. Is one of the greatest sources of stress. And in marriage counseling, we notice this all the time. And this is why creating healthy boundaries within those relationships is so important. Learning to create boundaries within relationship will help mitigate the stress in our lives. And we can address uh, some of those issues in the question answer session, inshallah. Orange, you're injured. So anxiety, anger, pervasive sadness, hopelessness. Restless and disturbed sleep, fatigue, aches, pains, decreased performance, uh, social avoidance or withdrawal. At this point, identify and understand your own signs of distress, talk with to someone, right? Talk to someone. It's not at the level of where you're getting professional help, but talk to someone as in, look, things aren't right. What do you think I should do? What advice do you have for me? And this isn't someone that's gonna give you bad advice, right? We all have that one friend that's gonna give you bad advice. Let's go do X, Y, and Z. You can fill that X, Y, and Z with whatever you want. That's not the person you're asking for advice. Someone that will give you sound advice. That's who you want to go to. Seek social support instead of withdrawing. And then illness, right? When a person is in the red. Excessive anxiety, easily enraged, depressed mood, unable to fall or stay asleep for like days at a time. Exhaustion, physical illness, you'll start to get sick, your immune system is completely shot, unable to perform duties, absenteeism, they're just not showing up to work, just not showing up to school. Isolation, avoiding social events, they just wanna stay in their room, close the blinds, lay in their bed for days at a time. At this point, you need to seek a consultation. You need to seek a professional, follow healthcare provider recommendations, regain physical and mental health. You gotta start working backwards. And this is where, you know, later on we'll be speaking about stigma uh, with regards to mental illness, but we have a communal responsibility to fight that. Just like someone has a broken arm, we don't shame them because they have a broken arm and they have a cast on their arm. Or someone tells you, oh, you know, I have an upset stomach. There's no shame in, in, in sharing that. But all of a sudden, if someone says, hey, I'm going to a psychologist, I'm going to a therapist, I'm going to a counselor, even though we may not say something, sometimes our facial expressions are enough. Like, really? Like something like that, that is enough to show that you're not being supportive. So when, sequel, when people are seeking adequate support, we have to be supportive of them. Now, this is what I want to spend a little bit of time on. Islamic self-care practices, starting with our own theology, starting with our own theology. So when we look at our aqidah, our source of belief, how do we understand our Lord? 
And for a lot of people, this can be a source of anxiety as well. They're constantly fearing the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're constantly fearing Jahannam. Not focusing on the mercy of Allah, not focusing on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's paradise. When you look at this approach in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us in Surah Al-Hijr verses 49 and 50, Let my slaves know that I am the most forgiving and I am the most merciful. And let my slaves know that my punishment is the most severe one. So this is a balance that we're meant to have. That we remember the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but our, our religion is not all about love and mercy and no accountability and no responsibility. Our religion comes with accountability and responsibility, but it's also when you make a mistake, you realize that the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there. When you look at the attitude of our predecessors towards this issue, before the sin is committed, fear the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. After the sin has been committed, focus on the mercy and forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the attitude that we should be having. But the reason why I, I highlight this concept of knowing your Lord, because when we think about the concept of God, oftentimes we think of God as a vengeful God, God as an angry God. But that's not what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us about Him in the Quran. Every surah begins with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the source of all mercy, the greatest displayer of mercy, right? And I love sharing this beautiful hadith. When the Prophet ﷺ was one day in a marketplace and he sees a woman that is distressed. She's running through the marketplace. You can imagine aisle by aisle. If you want to contextualize it, you're at a supermarket and there's a woman going through aisle by aisle crying her eyes out. And every time she sees a child, she picks up that child and she embraces that child. But then she lets the child go because it's not her child. And those tears of pain, those tears of anguish, until finally she finds her child. And those tears of pain and those tears of anguish now turn to tears of joy. And the Prophet ﷺ, just having witnessed this, he turns to his companions and he asks them a very important question. He asks them, do you think that this woman would ever throw her child into the fire? And he said, Kalla ya Rasulullah. Kalla is not just no, it is like the highest level of rebuke. Never, ever is that possible. A woman that loves her child so much, why would she ever throw her child into a fire? And then the Prophet ﷺ at that moment defined our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allahu arhamu bi'ibadihi min hadihi biwaladiha. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more loving, more caring, more tender, more compassionate towards his slaves than this mother is towards her child. So when we try to understand who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, that relationship can sort of be related to the mother. In what sense? The person that constantly wants you to succeed. The person that constantly wants what's good for you. The person that constantly wants what's best for you is your mother. Your parents are the only one that will want you to achieve a higher level of success than they themselves achieved, right? But particularly your mother. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants even better than that for you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not vindictive. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not vengeful. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants what is best for you. And Jahannam, the hellfire, is a result and a consequence, not of who Allah is, but our perpetual rebellion against what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded. And I emphasize perpetual. If it's a one-off and you repent, you're forgiven. It's as if this is not take place. But if you keep doing those sins and you're not repenting and you're not rectifying your ways, then at that point, you have to understand that there are consequences, spiritual and physical consequences in this life and the next. That's what ends up happening. So understand who your Lord is. The more you get to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through His names, the more you study about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, this will help create a support system for you that you understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is by your side. مَا وَدَعْكَ رَبُّكَ وَمَا قَلَى That your Lord has not abandoned you, nor does He detest you. The next aspect to this. Uh, I'm going to go on a, a theological tangent over here. Within early Muslim philosophers, you had philosophers that said that if reason and revelation were to ever come into conflict, then reason would take precedence over revelation. Reason would take precedence over revelation. Ibn Taymiyyah, he comes and argues that no, 
the source of reason and the source of revelation are one and the same from God. So an intellect that has not been corrupted and a revelation that is authentic and preserved coming from the same source, they cannot be contradictory. If it is, then there's a problem not in the revelation or the reason itself, but it's in the source of both of them, right? It will be a problem with God. And he said that is not possible. So anytime there is a problem, there has to be, in the, every time there is a perceived problem, there has to be an interpretation behind this. Now Ibn Taymiyyah takes this exact thinking and brings it to the, the question of theodicy, of dealing with evil and, and the problem of evil and how do we understand evil. So he takes this hadith of the Prophet wasallam that says, amazing is the affair of the believer, all of it is good. If something good happens, he is thankful. If something troublesome happens, then he is patient. So all of the affair of the believer is good. And he said, based upon this, we understand logical outcomes and we understand theological outcomes. For any given event, there are five logical outcomes. For any given event, there are five logical outcomes. And I want us to pay extra attention over here. Okay? So for any given event, there are five logical outcomes. Either it is absolute good, or it is absolute bad. Or they are equal. The good and the bad are equal. Or the good is greater than the bad. Or the bad is greater than the good. Or the bad is greater than the good. These are the five logical outcomes for any given scenario. But now he says, theologically speaking, looking at this hadith and understanding who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, there are only two possible theological outcomes. So even in the worst of circumstances, there's only two possible theological outcomes for the believer. Understand, that is the, the caveat over here. Either it is absolute good, or the good is greater than the evil. Or the good is greater than the evil. Now what premises says come with this statement? It has to be a believer, and they have to believe in an afterlife, right? That you cannot have... Uh, an ultimate outcome in this life. If you're talking about the topic of justice, think about all the terrible things that happen to children across the globe. There's no sense of justice in this life ultimately. Ultimate justice can only take place in the life of the hereafter. That is why belief in the life of the hereafter is so integral when we talk about justice, when you understand that true justice cannot take place in this life. Similarly, when we understand this concept of happiness, you get glimpses of happiness, you can be content in this life, but ultimate happiness, where everyone that you love is happy at all times and is not distressed ever, that only takes place in the hereafter. So now, I want you to think about all of these things that happen to a believer and how they are framed into something positive. Either the good is better than the evil or it is absolute good. The natural question that comes up is how about shaitan? the most evil of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation. What good could possibly come out of the existence of shaitan? And this is where I want you to think. What good can come out of the existence of shaitan? My little friend who's the mathematician, please, what good can come out of shaitan? Excellent. So shaitan whispers to us, and he tests us. And based upon those whispers and those tests, how we react to them will dictate whether we're getting good deeds or whether we're committing sin. So through the existence of shaitan, the believers get more good deeds, the righteous people get more good deeds, and that is what we strive for. So one of the ways that we are tested is through the existence of shaitan. That is one benefit of the existence of shaitan. Can we think of another benefit from the existence of shaitan? Sorry? So continuously making jihad of your nafs, so constantly struggling against, you know, uh, temptation. Excellent. What else? Go ahead. Sorry, can you just speak a little bit louder? You recognize who your friends are and who your enemies are? Excellent. Go ahead. So that shaitan says that he'll continue to lead people astray till the day of judgment. So shaitan is an example of what the ultimate wicked life leads to. Uh, an egotistical, arrogant, non-submissive being. Its logical conclusion 
is shaitan. So that example of what evil can lead to is shaitan. So these are all good examples. So when you fight the whispers of shaitan, good comes out of that. The existence of shaitan shows us what rebellion leads to. The existence of shaitan shows us that, you know, there is no person that's devoid of, of hope except those that give up. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala invited him to his mercy, invited him to his forgiveness. Shaitan refused. So these are all benefits from the existence of shaitan. So you have to understand that even in the most evil of circumstances, good can be derived. As long as it leads to you entering paradise at the end of the day, everything that happens is good. That's how we want to frame things. So number two, we move on to dua. The concept of supplicating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Complaining to Allah as, above, uh, as opposed to about Allah. In Surah Yusuf, Yaqub loses his son. And in fact, he loses his second son as well. And what does he do? He says, uh, he, Yaqub he says, Ashku wa huzni ilallah wa a'lamu min ma la That I complain of my grief and sorrow to Allah. And I know of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that which you not know. So this shows us the permissibility of complaining to Allah and how this is a righteous deed. What is the difference between complaining to Allah as opposed to complaining about Allah? Complaining to Allah, you're recognizing your own weakness and the strength of Allah. You're recognizing your own uh, dependence and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's independence. You're recognizing your own uh, insufficiency and how sufficient Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, right? So this is what complaining to Allah looks like. It's about seeking help by recognizing your own weakness. And the Prophet ﷺ himself did this. When you look at the famous dua of Ta'if, the incident of Ta'if, what does he say? He says, Ashku ilayka da'fa quwati wa qilla wa hawanin ala nas. Right, all of these things that, that are happening, that I complain to you of my weakness and my lack of having a plan, anything in, in front of me, and my dependence upon the people. He's complaining to Allah. And when we talk about the concept of venting, this is what good venting looks like. Good venting is complaining to Allah and you seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's help. Bad venting is when you start talking about people and you start telling other people about your problems that involve other people. And even though you may not intend it, but you're shaming those people, making those people look bad, right? That's what bad venting looks like. So complaining to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and understanding who can really help you in this situation? You have to identify your support systems again, right? So once you've identified your support systems, you turn to your support systems at that time. And your primary support religiously is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Always turning to Allah in prosperity and in adversity. Asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for help. Asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for good to be maintained. Asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for ease. Constantly asking for those things. Now, the salah. This concept of disengagement from day-to-day -day stress. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala legislated the prayer, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave certain objectives behind it. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us in the Quran, That the salah prohibits and prevents a person from lewd and evil behavior. In the act of salah, you're not going to be thinking of evil and lewd behavior. And it becomes a protective measure for you. And you're meant to completely disengage from the salah. As you're meant to completely meant to disengage in the salah. Now what does that look like? And what mistakes do people make? Oftentimes when we embark upon prayer and come to prayer, we don't take the time that is needed to flush out our thoughts and empty out our thoughts before we, empty, uh, before we enter the prayer. So before you enter the prayer, we're even taught that if the food is being served, eat before you start your prayer. This applies to you have to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. There's something urgent you have to do, go and do that urgent thing before you start the prayer so that shaitan cannot use it as a weapon or as a tactic to make you disengaged from the prayer. Because this is your spiritual rejuvenation at that time. And this is why there are even certain practices that you're meant to engage in that starting from wudu, this concept of making wudu, it's about your sins being forgiven, right? The drops that fall off your body, those are your sins being forgiven. It is about imagining on the day of judgment, all these parts that I made wudu with, they're going to be a shining light. When you start the prayer, you're thinking about standing in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
and what that would be like. You're thinking about the angels of good deeds, writing down the good deed that you're doing, so that you want to perfect this action as much as possible. You're thinking about the angel of death behind you, that what if this is my last prayer? You pray as if it is your last prayer. And then all of the actions of prayer are meant to remind you of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you look at divine wisdom, you start off by saying Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar is not the heaviest statement on the scale of good deeds. La ilaha illallah is more heavier. Yet why do we start with Allahu Akbar? Because it is the most befitting statement at that time, we remind ourselves that there is nothing greater, there's nothing more important, there is nothing that my Lord cannot handle, and my Lord is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is what you're reminding yourself of as you start the prayer with Allahu Akbar. So it's getting into a state of mind that I'm about to engage in a private conversation with my Lord. So I need to have that apt attitude, that apt posture, that apt behavior that you would engage your Lord with. So your ultimate focus is only on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's amazing if you can force yourself to disengage from this dunya and engage with the akhirah. Now once the prayer is over and you're like, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah, you're ready to go back and engage with your task and engage with your stress. But when you don't take breaks from your stress, your stress eventually breaks you. And that's what you need to realize. So that is what the prayer is meant to be for. It is meant to disengage from our stress, the equivalent of what people do with yoga and meditation in this day and age. It's meant to de-stress you and completely focus on something else. And then the last thing is this concept of gratitude, shukr. And I want to share the statement of Amr ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, who said that when the Sahaba radiallahu anhu were tested and tried, they were grateful for three things. So when we think of tests and trials, we often think of patience. But the attitude over here is not to focus on patience, but it is to focus on gratitude. So he says that they were grateful that this trial was not in their faith, that they lost something of this dunya, the dunya comes and goes but your faith gets tested, then that's something to worry about. So as long as it wasn't in their faith, they were okay. Number two, they were thankful that the trial was not as great as it could have been. An individual loses $10. It is a catastrophe. You can do a lot with $10. But be grateful that Alhamdulillah, I didn't lose $100. Be grateful that I have my health. Be grateful that I have my family. So many things to be grateful for. That is what you should focus on. That Alhamdulillah, the calamity was not as great or as severe as it could have been. And then the third thing he mentions is that they were grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed them to keep their composure and to be patient. Now I want you to think about what a terrible sight it is when people become angry and obscene and vulgar and they break things and are completely out of control. It's a very uncomfortable situation to be in. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed you to keep your composure even in the most difficult of trials, then this is something to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for. And this is something that you train your nafs to, right? If you look at one hadith and one ayah, Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa he says, As-sabru inda sadmat al-ula. That patience is when the calamity first strikes. Then when you look at the Quranic injunction, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tell us? Alladheena idha asabathum musibah, qalu, what do they say? Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. That the believers, when they're struck by calamity, their natural reaction is to say to indeed, indeed to Allah, we belong and to Him we shall return. You train your nafs to get to that level where your natural reaction is to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Can I do a fun exercise with you guys? Are you guys okay with that? It's a bit immature, but let's do this exercise. So this story revolves around me and my relationship with my cousin. So I have an older sister, alhamdulillah, but she wasn't like the friendliest person growing up. So she's four years older than me. She had like full autonomy of the house. She was like the favorite child. So anytime one of her friends came over, and it happened often, it wasn't enough that I'd go to my room or go to the basement. I'd have to physically leave the house. So you can only play so much basketball, only go play so many video games with your friends. You eventually have to do homework. So when homework time came, I'd go to my cousin's house. And I ended up spending so much time with this cousin, she was six months younger than me, 
we literally established like a sibling rivalry. It was so strange. But for those of you that come from big households and big families, you may be able to relate. So she gets a, a, a new bicycle. I need to get a better bicycle. She got a laptop. I need to get a better laptop. And this is the way that it continued. We're constantly competing with another. And obviously when it came to our grades, you know, as soon as I would come home, my mom would be like, so how did you do? And I'm like, alhamdulillah, I got an A in this, I got a B in that, and this is how I did. But then there's always that dagger that either stabs you in the heart or stabs you in the back, depending on how you perceive it. How did your cousin do? And I'm like, why is that even relevant? Like, am I not your child? Why do you care about how she did in school? And obviously, being more studious, you know, being more isolated, I mean, I come up with a whole bunch of reasons that aren't true. That's why she did academically better than I did. But as is the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, my vindication, my victory came the day we went to get our driver's license. And let me tell you that story. So she goes and does her, her driving exam and she comes home and there's tears in her eyes. And I'm like, are those tears of joy or are those tears of sadness? Let's wait and find out. And those tears get stronger and she's like, Mama, Baba, I'm so sorry what I failed. And that shows you that how much pressure was on her <laughs> to pass her exam. Like I think back, I'm like, that's not fair. There shouldn't be that much pressure to pass an exam. But I don't admit to this, but in the back of the house, I'm like, Takbir, Allahu Akbar. I'm like celebrating your loss. What happens when you do that? All the pressure is on you now. So I go to do my driver's exam and I get into the car and this gentleman's sitting there and he's like, Mr. Aziz, welcome to your final driving exam. Please proceed out of the parking lot. So I'm like, Bismillah. I put on my seatbelt. I check all of my mirrors. I look around. Everything's clear. I put the car in reverse. I'm going back. I'm going back. I'm going back. Boom! You hit something. What is the first word that comes to your mouth? We're in the masjid. Don't say it too loud. But our natural reaction at that time shows what's in our hearts, shows what's in our souls. Some of us may have not said anything, and that's fine. Some of us may have said something bad, and that we shouldn't be saying. That's something, a behavior that we need to change. Some of us, we may have even remembered Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that time. And that is what we're striving for. So what we look at is that when the calamity strikes, where does your heart naturally turn to, to seek its support? We want to train it to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, what does self-care look like? What does self-care look like? 50 ways to take a break. This will vary from person to person, from individual to individual. Some people will excel at journaling, writing down what happened in their day, talking about their emotions, and letting it all out through journaling. Other people will do art, other people will go for a walk, other people will play video games, other people will go for a bike ride. It varies from person to person. The reason why I highlight this is that you need to figure out what your body uses to de-stress. Some of them are going to be healthy and some of them not so healthy. So something like playing you know, violent video games, it may distract you, but it's not taking your stress away. So we're not looking for distractions, we're looking for something to take our stresses away that will actually make us feel better. So it's very important to look at how your body reacts to certain activities and then those are the activities that you want to pursue to de-stress. Sports, walks, nature, art, poetry, journaling, whatever it may be. There's 50 examples over here. Coloring with crayons, climbing a tree, you know, giving thanks, whatever it may be. So figure out what it is that works for you. And that when you need to take a break and you can tell like, hey, I'm getting into the yellow here. Let me go and do something that will help me de-stress and practice self-care. The S word, dealing with stigma in the Muslim community. And this is something that I spoke about earlier on, that the way that we treat physical illness is the sort of community approach that we need to take to mental illness as well. That sometimes people will fall in an event, they'll trip over a wire, something will happen, and everyone will be like, okay, let's go help them. But at a community event, if someone has a mental breakdown, you know, uh, a psychological illness uh, appears, all of a sudden we're petrified and scared, step away, let's not help and support the person, call the cops, you know, get them kicked out of the masjid, what other approach, whatever other approach we may take. 
It's not a supportive approach. And a lot of that stems from stigma, it stems from ignorance, it stems from not understanding what is going on. So just like a person with physical illness needs help and support, someone with a mental illness also needs help and support. Another concept that needs to be addressed is the concept of jinn. I understand that yes, as Muslims, we do believe in jinn, we do believe in sihr, we do believe that there is a dark world and a dark element in this life. But to attribute everything to that, oh, I fell down, oh, it must be jinn, oh, I didn't get a job, oh, someone did sihr on me. That's not the way this world works, right? Sometimes you have to accept responsibility and accountability for your own actions. This is not to minimize it, it is not to belittle it, but I'm just saying we can't blame everything on it. There are natural occurrences that will occur, and that's just life. You accept it and you move on. So blaming everything on jinn is also not a way out. That mental illness does exist, it is real, just like a physical illness is. And that is the way that we'll treat it as well. And we have a communal responsibility to eradicate the stigma. Now, this question always comes up. If I go through depression or I feel sad, does this mean I have weak faith? I want to hear, I love that, alhamdulillah. The definite answer is no. There is not a direct causal relationship between a high level of faith and sadness and depression. What is the evidence of this, right? We are people of evidence. We always want to look at evidence. You look at the seerah of the Prophet wasallam, his biography, you have a whole entire year known as Am Al-Huzn, the year of sorrow, the year of grief. That was the year Khadija radiallahu anha passed away, the year Abu Talib passed away, the incident of Taif. Those three major moments, you know, defining moments in the life of the Prophet wasallam, happened in that year. And it was called the year of sorrow, which shows us that the person with the greatest amount of faith that has ever lived, if he can feel sadness, if he can feel grief, then so can we. And that has nothing to do with your faith. And you look at a very specific example, when the son of the Prophet ﷺ passed away, what do we learn from that incident? He says, That the eyes will shed tears and the heart will grieve. This is a part of a natural process. And those things are beyond your control. You can't control if you're going to cry. Sometimes the body just needs to let it out. You can't control grieving. That is a part of a human process. But what you can control is what the Prophet says in the third part. But the tongue will only say that which is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So focus on what is in your control and that is what you're accountable for. That which is beyond your control, you're not held accountable for. And this is like another thing when we talk about masculinity. And what does masculinity look like? It's not about this you know, red pill movement that's uh, emerging in our day and age. The Prophet ﷺ cried. And one of the companions in another version of this hadith was astonished. Ya Rasulullah, are you crying? Like, doesn't your faith prevent you from crying? Doesn't your masculinity prevent you from crying? And what does he respond with? Inna Indeed, it is a mercy from Allah. And I want you to think about the last time you cried, one of the beautiful things about crying is how you naturally feel better after crying. I don't know what the science is behind that, but you cry and you feel better. Even though nothing has changed in your life, you cry and you feel better. And that's what ends up happening. So now when we think about depression that's related to an event, you are allowed to feel sad. You are allowed to feel depressed. You are allowed to grieve and to process. And it has nothing to do with your faith. So when incidents happen and you feel sad, that's normal. What we want to diagnose and seek professional help for is what if nothing sad has really happened, but you're feeling sad and you're feeling hopeless, hopelessness. Go and seek help at that time. Go and have a conversation with someone. The concept of empathy and helping others. You know, this is something that's very, very important. And if you look at the life of the Prophet wasallam. One of the divine wisdoms behind why the Prophet ﷺ went through so many hardships and calamities. So let's try to list them as much as possible. His father passing away at six months, mother passing away at five or six years, grandfather passing away at nine years, Khadija radiallahu anha, his first love and wife, passing away in his lifetime. All of his children 
passing away in his lifetime, except for Fatima radiallahu anha. The incident of Taif happening, the incident of Banu Qurayza happening, the treachery, the backstabbing, all of this happening, why? Two reasons that we can extract that are very simple. Number one, is that it gave the Prophet wasallam a deeper, deeper level of empathy. That when someone loses a child, when someone loses a family member, he knows what it's like to have experienced it and the emotions that they will go through. So now he knows how to support them and he knows what they need. And then number two, is that the Prophet ﷺ becomes the role model in terms of how to react in those circumstances. How to react in those circumstances and situations. So now developing that empathy that we are all humans, we will all grieve, we will all go through hardships and calamities and we're all in this together. And I empathize with the pain that you're going through and validate the emotions, right? We don't say, why are you sad? We don't say, why are you angry? You acknowledge the fact that people have the right to be sad and they have the right to be angry. And this is what the Prophet ﷺ tells Aisha radiallahu anha, right? I know when you're angry with me and I know when you're happy with me. He allowed that range of emotion in his marital life. It wasn't a dictatorship where you only can be happy all the time, right? So you have to validate people's emotions and say it's okay. It's fine to feel the way that you feel. And then actively listening. And I think particularly for men, this is something that we need to look at. When we listen, it's often to problem solve. We hear a problem, oh, here's the solution. But when you're dealing with different people, with different walks of life, oftentimes they just need to know that someone cares. Don't offer a solution unless they ask for one. That's what I've learned in my experience. Someone asks for a solution, offer it to them. But oftentimes they just want, you, they just want to know that someone cares about them that someone wants good for them, that someone is willing to support them. So that active listening component is very important. And also giving people your, pure, your undivided attention. So when someone is speaking to you, don't be busy on your phone, don't be distracted by something else. The Prophet wasallam used to turn his full body and face the people that he was speaking to. He would never you know, give them half divided attention. Things not to say, things not to say. I know it's due for uh, the Adhan very, very soon, but I just want to finish this slide. And actually we have three slides and we'll be done. So these are things that you shouldn't say to people. And these are perhaps things that are commonly said, that they're quick to our, our tongues, but things like, you need to get out more, it's all in your mind, you have nothing to worry about, stop complaining all the time, I always knew you had a problem. <laughs> there is nothing even wrong with you, stop looking for attention, you don't look anxious or depressed, you aren't pushing yourself hard enough. It sounds like you're going crazy. You need to stop feeling sorry for yourself. No one ever said life was fair. You're always so negative. It's your own fault. Things aren't that bad. Things could be so much worse. Just snap out of it. Right? These are things that we commonly respond to people, but they have a very detrimental effect. The one that I highlight are two. You don't look anxious or depressed. Anxiety and depression manifest itself in different ways with people. And number two, you aren't pushing yourself enough you don't know what people's capacities are. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created people with different capacities, right? So keep those in mind. The reward of helping people. Going out of your way to help people. The Prophet ﷺ says that if anyone relieves a Muslim believer from one of the hardships of this worldly life, Allah will relieve him of one of the hardships of the day of resurrection. If anyone makes it easy for the one who is indebted to him, Allah will make it easy for him in this worldly life and the hereafter. And if anyone conceals the fault of a Muslim, Allah will conceal his faults in this world and in the hereafter. Allah helps his slave as long as he helps his fellow brothers and sisters. Allahu fi awni abdihi, mayakuna al-abdu fi awni akhihi. And this applies to brothers and sisters. So this concept of going out of our way to help people. And what I mean by this, is I want you to imagine you're walking down an aisle and you see someone crying. We've been conditioned so much so, mind your own business and keep walking on. But that is not the attitude of the believer, that as long as it's a safe environment, stop and ask them, are you okay? Is there something that I can help you with? That is a human thing to do. And understand that when you do that, you have a great reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as this hadith clearly states. Now, the conclusion I wanted to share with all of you. Invest in your imams. Imams are usually frontline workers in our communities. They have religious training, but they don't have mental health and psychological training. So if you want your imam to be a good community leader, you have to provide them that training. 
But until you provide them that training, don't go to them for mental health advice. Go to a professional. We as a community have to raise awareness on such topics to eradicate the stigma. It's a part of al-amr bil-ma'ruf wa-nahi an-munkar, enjoining good and forbidding evil. When we get, away, get eradicate the stigma and create safe spaces for people to talk and to discuss, then that is when our community will thrive. Up until then, our communities will not thrive. Realization that Islam is all-encompassing and it is always the beginning of our research. That we don't believe in the secular approach to science where science and religion are separate. We believe that science and religion go hand in hand. They're from the same source. That on top of every science is the source of all knowledge, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Be aware and seek help when you need it. Look at your own triggers, look at your own uh, things that cause stress and anxiety. And when you need help, reach out. And then last but not least, when you're able to, always be the helping hand. Starting off with your closest family members and your friends, pay attention to their behaviors and help people as much as you can. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us all. So just uh, briefly speak about what's going to happen now. We'll break for Maghrib now. We'll give the Adhan and we'll give the Aqama right after. And then uh, we'll leave about six, seven minutes for your Sunnah prayers and your Dhikr. Then we'll come back. We're going to have Brother Shafni do a short presentation. And then we'll have the Q&A where you can ask all of your questions, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. Thank you so much.